welcome to Pod Bless Canada, the McDonald Laurier Institute's premier public policy podcast. My name is Brett Byers, and I'm the communications manager at MLI. Today, we're joined by Anastasia Lynn, Marcus Kolga, and Kave Sharuz, who are experts at MLI and some of Canada's most important voices on human rights and the transnational repression engaged in by foreign regimes like China, Russia, and Iran. And that's precisely what we're going to discuss today. Recent news of a kidnapping plot targeting Iranian human rights activists, including Masih Alinejad, has served as a painful reminder about how authoritarian repression from regimes like Iran extend well beyond their country's borders and into countries like Canada. Indeed, China continues to target regime critics in Canada, whether they be Hong Kongers, Tibetans, Uyghurs, Chinese Canadians, or others, and Canada is offering little recourse for targets and victims. In most extreme cases, countries like Russia have brazenly poisoned regime critics like Vladimir Karamurza. Clearly, these authoritarian actors are showing little restraint when it comes to exercising their thuggish behavior on our very streets, and there's little that our government appears to be doing about it. So let's make sense of all this, and I'll start with you, Kave. Why is Iran doing this? It's probably unlikely that they would have succeeded in kidnapping Alinejad, and this, of course, hurts their reputation abroad. So what even is the motivation for countries like Iran? Well, I think there's a couple of motivations. One is to try to silence Messi Alinejad herself. I'm happy to say that she is not being intimidated by the Iranian regime, and she has said that she's going to continue. Messi has millions of followers on social media, and the campaigns that she leads are wildly successful, and they bring a lot of attention to the human rights abuses in Iran. But beyond intimidating Messi personally, I think the point of a kidnapping plot like this, even if it's outlandish and unlikely to succeed, is that it sends waves of fear and terror through the entire diaspora so that anyone that thinks about speaking out against the Iranian regime will have second thoughts. They will have to look over their shoulders and they have to worry about whether or not the people they're talking to are agents of the Iranian regime and they have to worry about whether or not their actions against the Iranian regime are going to get them possibly kidnapped or killed. Right. So Anastasia, from your perspective, how would you say that China goes about attempting to silence its critics in Canada and elsewhere? Is it fair to say that China's repression is more subtle or are they engaging in the same kind of brutal thuggish tactics we saw from Iran? Well, I wouldn't say that they're more subtle if you read it in Chinese. Um, So usually they go about criticizing both the foreign nationals who are criticizing China, China scholars, Chinese journalists who report on China, and also Chinese people who have a different voice from the Communist Party. So for the Chinese people who still have families and businesses back home, using their family and businesses, whatever they care about that's still inside China under the Chinese Communist Party script, they will use that as a leverage to silence these people. My example for that my father was intimidated when I spoke out about China's human rights abuse. Now, overseas, it's slightly more complicated. There is cyberbullying of Chinese dissidents. I mean, all of us experience this, that there is a, a troll army behind you whenever you publish an article or there's an interview. And then there is the more subtle community level where there's the united front work. They permeate every level of the Chinese community and Canadian society Really, they're in universities, they're in professional associations. They're sometimes as detailed as going to specific dissidents' own community inside Canada that is kind of not even Chinese. And then there's also going beyond to like the day-to-day life and more to the academics, 
um, the journalist who dare to report about China, um, then they will have these so-called Chinese association that looks like they represent overseas Chinese, but they don't. They're just an arm of the party apparatus, and they will sue the journalists, sue the academics for things that they say that are critical but true about China. All of these tactics have worked, but they're getting more and more exposed. I wouldn't say that they're subtle, but they're less known to the Canadian public. But I have seen there are more reports, but still there's room for improvement. Well, hopefully this conversation is a start to some of that improvement. And a sub to all of this is the fact that there's not much action from our government in terms of defending human rights activists and those who are being targeted by foreign regimes. Marcus, is that fair to say? What does Canada presently do to combat this behavior? And how coordinated are intelligence agencies? and How integrated are they into the systems for protecting individuals from foreign regime oppression? Essentially, are we doing enough as it stands? No, we're not doing enough. In fact, I don't think we're doing much of anything with regards to defending human rights activists and civil society activists and critics of, of these regimes in here in Canada. And I think that's largely due to the fact that there are differing views and understandings of that threat. I think if we're looking specifically at the government of Canada, meaning the current cabinet, I'm not sure that this is a priority issue for the government. I'm not sure that there is a clear understanding of the threat that's posed to Canadians by these foreign regimes, by intimidation. And I don't think that they quite understand that this is actually representing an existential threat to our democracy and that it's eroding the dialogue that we are, we should be having amongst each other and the core values of our democracy. When we look at our intelligence community, I think they do have an understanding. CSIS just put out a report and so did the CSE just in over the past two weeks. Both of those re reports and specifically the CSIS report underlines the threat of foreign interference and intimidation in our democracy. And I think that the National Security and Intelligence Committee of all parliamentarians, their 2020 report, which was released a few months ago, also underlines the threat that Canadian civil society faces from intimidation by these foreign regimes. The unfortunate thing, again, going back to the government, is that they don't seem to understand the threat and they certainly don't recognize the threat. And unfortunately, there is no coherent government policy to defend those of us who speak out and are critical of these regimes. And we're often left to our own devices. I've received numerous threats. And just as Anastasia has mentioned, anytime I write an article that's critical of the Russian regime or, or China for that matter, but mostly Russia, I receive a fire hose of trolls, whether it's on social media or in, in comments sections, which isn't a, too big of a deal. But when I receive death threats, and I've received death threats three times, it's been very hard to find anywhere to go with regards to the government to find support. And it was only the last time, which was in May of of 2020, York Region Police, just north of Toronto, where I live, did respond to the threat. But otherwise, there's nowhere for activists or journalists to turn to in Canada. And this is a problem because the issue of intimidation, there's, there are two ways to go about uh, addressing it, and that's to build resilience among our civil society activists and amongst journalists, but also to deter that behavior by these regimes. And we're not doing either of those things at the moment. Right. Kave and Anastasia, up to you guys who wants to tackle this first. Do Marcus's experiences ring true to you as well, that when faced with threats, particularly from very necessary activism, on, on you know whether it's related to human rights or commenting on the oppression of these regimes, do you feel as though there's very little recourse offered by the government today? That's been my experience as well. 
I think the times in the past that I have received threats, I've often struggled to find somebody on the government side or in law enforcement side to take them very seriously and to give me advice that's tailored for the particular risks that I'm facing. And I think it's just because, as, as Marcus was alluding, I don't think our governments really understand kind of what this risk is and how widespread it is. And I don't think it's just me. You know, I, I work with a lot of activists that work on Iran or victims. This issue comes up a fair bit with the families of those that were on the flight that was shot down the PS752, and they have been on the receiving a lot of intimidation. And they also are all quite concerned that their threats that they've faced have not been taken very seriously. Again, I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad intention on the part of our government or law enforcement. It's not that they don't want to help. It's just that they don't recognize that this is a unique category of intimidation. This is a unique category of crime that they ought to have unique tools to deal with. And I hope that over time, as a result of these conversations, people begin to understand the nature of these threats and begin to deal with them as unique threats. Yeah, I would say the same, that for us, the Chinese dissidents, I generally feel like there is a lack of awareness about the motivation of these threats. Because when I talk about it to normal Canadians, they are generally very, very, very surprised about this is happening in Canada and that these people are purely motivated by hate, be it nationalism or sometimes just purely acting as a very enthusiastic volunteer for the Chinese Communist Embassy. I personally got more attention because I spoke up on the media about my case, even though a personal intimidation, threats, messages that are sent into my email or Facebook that contain really derogatory messages, I receive them, but those are not the worst. And also I get a chance to expose them on the media. But the most vulnerable population are the Chinese Canadians who don't dare to speak up and have to endure it in silence. And I got in touch with a lot of them here in Vancouver. They don't have the platform as an activist like I do. They also don't feel like there is going to be enough support when they do speak up. For example, for Hong Kong people, for people in Taiwan, like Hong Kong Canadians, Taiwan Canadians, and the Chinese who don't believe in CCP's propaganda, whenever there is a protest, like for example, if Chinese leader come here, and I experienced this when I was a teenager, when there's a protest and they go out to protest to the Chinese communist leader, they're going to be followed or their voices are going to be covered by those pro-CCP groups that are organized by the embassy. And sometimes these groups act in really aggressive ways, putting Chinese flags in front of us, literally physically covering the voice and the scene of these protesters. It happens on university campuses, but it's usually not being dealt very well by authorities because they don't understand the nature of it. Right. There seems to be some common themes around this and your point about the dissident community not feeling as though they're supported enough to speak out goes back to what Cave uh, was mentioning earlier that you know, sometimes all you need to intimidate is the presence of an actor willing to be intimidating. Whether or not the attempts, so for instance kidnappings, actually succeed, the notion that these regimes would engage in kidnappings or would engage in following people home or would engage in organizing online trolls, just the nature of that existing has a chilling effect. Another thing that I thought might be interesting to dive into and would love to hear all of your expertise on this is that there's a bit of an intersection between what might be charitably described as a naive foreign policy pursued by Canada in recent years and how these regimes are acting. 
So is there any interaction, would you say, in your opinions, between how Canada deals with these regimes writ large? So, for instance, with respect to China, there seems to be a reticence from Canada to join in with uh, U.S.-led efforts to push back against China's economic coercion and human rights abuses. Because of Canada's reticence in that area, does that potentially contribute to a lack of seriousness with respect to uh, this transnational repression that we're talking about? And if so, how can we adequately go about addressing these structural issues in our foreign affairs? And I'll leave this open to whoever wants to tackle it first. Let me try to jump in. I think there is a lot to what you're saying. There is a certain naivete, I think, both on the part of our government, but also our foreign policy thinkers with respect to these repressive states. And I think the naivete comes in the form of thinking that you can dialogue your way into better behavior by these states. Some of it is driven, obviously, by economic interests and trade interests. Some of it, I think, is just thinking that other dictatorial regimes think the way that a democracy thinks. And I think we got to get past that. And I think that's really fundamentally the solution is for us and our foreign policy elite to think differently. The government of Iran or Russia or China or whatever is not going to be persuaded by dialogue. And I have yet to see anyone ever present me with evidence that anyone's behavior got better as a result of dialogue and engagement. I think what we have to recognize is that these states are bad actors and that the bad behavior, it's embedded in their very structures. Fear and repression and intimidation are the tools by which these regimes survive. Absent them, these regimes would not be what they are. It's not a policy proposal that I'm giving you. It sounds sort of very abstract, but I really think the way for us to fix our foreign policy and also to deal with this transnational issue stuff is to begin by changing our mindset about the nature of these regimes and to understand that they respond much better to pressure than they do to the carrot of engagement and trade deals and so on. I think that we need to, first of all, recognize that transnational repression is not just a problem uh, that that is that affects activists outside of Canada. This is a threat that Canadian civil society activists face on a daily basis. And we need to start with that. And once we get to that point, we have to look at how we change this behavior. Further to Kaveh's point, at the moment, there is no deterrence. There are no consequences for these regimes when they behave in this way, when they intimidate civil society activists, whether it's in Canada or abroad. We have not introduced any sort of cost for this sort of behavior in order to begin deterring it. And so this would mean using the sanctions regime that we currently have. We haven't implemented it properly. We failed to use it as a deterrent, which would it was originally designed as. I know this because I, I led the campaign for Canadian Magnitsky sanctions. It's just not being used. And these foreign actors are able right now to act with complete impunity when it comes to interfering in our democracy, intimidating activists, and discrediting those activists as well. So we need to get to a point where, first of all, like I said, we recognize the threat and introduce consequences. We haven't done so yet. So strength is the language that these dictatorships understand. And having lived in China under that kind of mentality, you automatically know that they will never compromise. They will take whatever they can take. And there's no uh, reciprocity, there's only strength, because the ideology of them is fittest survive. If you're strong enough, you can take anything. And so that's why for people who are raised in a free society, 
you're taught to respect, you're taught to listen and to receive. That way, it facilitates communication. But for people who are raised, like I'm talking about bureaucrats, officials that are raised in the communist system, that's not the language they speak. And so when you do that, they are not going to hear you. One thing that I'm struck by as well as a contributing factor to all of this is the role that disinformation plays. And so, Marcus, maybe I'll get you to comment first on this, as this is a bit of a niche for you. I wonder, in your view, to what extent does a kind of toxic information environment uh, permit or allow this kind of abuse to occur? I mean, of course, we have mentioned the proliferation of cyberbullying and abuse online as a form in which this kind of state-sponsored repression can try to silence voices. But does it stem beyond that? Is it more endemic in the sense of foreign regimes undermining the very legitimacy of our democracy and the strength of our civil society? That's a great question. I think we have to go back to the basics and look at what the overall intent, what are the goals of these foreign regimes, Russia, China, and Iran. And ultimately, it is the subversion of our democracy, the erosion of trust, our trust in our elected officials, in our media, and certainly within with each other because they are unable to compete when our societies are unified and certainly when our alliances are whole, alliances like NATO and others. When we work together, they simply cannot compete with us. So their ultimate goal with all of this, with influence operations and information operations, is to break down our trust and the cohesion of our societies and our democracies. So certainly this the toxic information environment that we're, we're currently in, it's much easier for them. And the other thing is that this isn't, isn't a new issue. So we talk about you know, cyberbullying and using the internet and online platforms to do this. It certainly makes it much easier for them, but this is not a new problem. These foreign regimes, you know, going back to the Cold War, the Soviet Union used intimidation and influence operations to advance its interests 40, 50 years ago. We know this, you know, various defectors who have come defected from the KGB to Canada. And back during the Cold War, it was, again, activists, Eastern European, Central European activists, entire communities who were targeted with disinformation. And we're seeing that now. We see the Russian government targeting the Ukrainian community with disinformation in efforts to discredit them because of their effective advocacy for Crimea and, and Ukraine. We even saw Christian Freeland targeted with a disinformation campaign, you know, Canada's deputy prime minister, then foreign minister, disinformation campaign that was targeting her, tried to discredit her through her grandfather, who worked at a newspaper in Nazi-occupied uh, Poland. And through him, these efforts were intended to smear her and discredit her in, in the process. So what we're seeing today is nothing new. It is a proliferation of these tactics of intimidation and certainly interference in our democracy. They're not new, and we need to recognize them as such in order to effectively address them. So my personal experience is that people are being intimidated directly by the regime overseas, and it affects the well-being of the dissidents. Like my sponsors, who are Chinese-Canadian, have been threatened directly by the Communist Party's embassy. And then that affects me emotionally uh, so extremely that I felt like I was living really under the iron fist of Chinese Communist Party, even though I'm in Canada. And that happens on such a level that these voices really need to be heard. Yeah, I suppose there's a bit of a sovereignty angle to all of this as well, that if we, um, you know, if Canada can't even defend its own uh, citizens within our own borders, then what does that say about our state capacity more generally? 
I can just pick up on Anastasia's point, I mean, the psychological impact of foreign intimidation, whether it's the threat of sexual violence, whether it's a death threat, or the efforts to discredit activists, whether it's on social media, in regular media, letter writing campaigns, the psychological impact of that is significant, not just the chilling effect. My original point about resilience, we need to adopt some sort of measures to provide support for those activists when they do face this sort of intimidation. Again, whether it's ensuring that there's a hotline where they can call to make sure that the authorities are aware of these sorts of threats, but also making sure that there are others who have faced these sorts of threats, that there's a network. And I'm lucky enough to have a fairly large network and a large platform from which to speak about these issues, but not everyone does. And especially when we get down to grassroots pro-democracy and human rights activists, I'm working with a Russian group right now, a Russian-Canadian group that's fighting for democracy and freedom in Russia and against corruption. And like Anastasia said about the Chinese and Uyghur communities, there's a real fear there that their families back at home will be intimidated, they may face threats, or that they may face threats here or a campaign to discredit them. And there's a real reluctance to really be outspoken on these important issues. And this is something we also need to address and build resilience with people and so that they have the courage when they want to stand up for freedom, democracy and human rights, that they're able to do so without fear. Right now, they're left to their own devices. And that's problematic. So I think you were starting to get into where I was hoping to bring the conversation next, which is what are the solutions? What do they look like? What are other countries doing to address this problem? We spoke about how Canada is perhaps a bit of a laggard on these things, but are other countries up to speed and protecting dissident voices and human rights activists better? Kevin, maybe we'll start with you on this one. Yeah, I, I don't think I'm well positioned to give a comparative answer. I'm not entirely certain what other countries are doing, to be honest with you, on these. I mean, I, I know we have Magnitsky legislation, other countries do as well, and they take some additional steps in terms of enforcing them in a way that we don't. But by and large, I mean, I think this transnational repression is relatively new. So I think a lot of democratic and free countries are learning about it and going to have to figure it out in the coming years. In terms of what we can do, I, I mean, I alluded to it in an earlier answer. I think part of it is just a shift in our mindset or a recognition that these are really bad actors that we just can't have a normal good faith dialogue with and ask them to change their behavior. This is going to take pressure. The other things that I think are necessary, Marcus, I think, alluded to the Magnitsky sanctions, you know, on individual actors that we can identify who have a role in exporting repression. That's certainly critical. I think what's also important is for our law enforcement and intelligence communities to devote greater resources to figuring out where these threats are coming from and identifying the perpetrators and also providing reassurance to activists that they can find safety in countries like Canada and the United States. And also, I think we have to be better at monitoring. It's easy to say it's very tough to do, but it's really critical in this. We have to monitor kind of who's coming into this country and what money is coming into this country. And I fear, especially on the money point, in our desire to get investment into Canada, in our desire to bring capital into Canada, we have sort of fallen asleep a little bit at the wheel and we have not done sufficient diligence to figure out where is this money coming from and what is it being used to finance. I certainly see that to be the case with the Iranian community and I hear it from others with respect to Russian money or Chinese money coming to this country. Some of that money is illicitly gained and brought to 
Canada to be used for nefarious purposes. And I really hope that our law enforcement is watching the flow of that money carefully and trying to take steps to ensure that it's not being used to intimidate people here. Anastasia, any thoughts about some other countries might be doing or what solutions are on the table for Canada? Sure. First, definitely pass legislations to deter these acts, not just by the Chinese Communist Party's agent, but also the actions by foreign businesses and academic institutions who are also going with the Chinese rhetoric. For example, Confucius Institute like the universities that the Confucius Institutes are in that are helping to silence speakers like me or scream films like In the Name of Confucius. And also like businesses who are willing to sort of change Taiwan into China. All of that that are happening beside Chinese Canadians like me make us feel, oh, wow, the society is not actually free and democratic, and they're not as aware as they think. They're actually going with the dictator's rhetoric. That makes us feel even more dangerous to recognize these things, to articulate, okay, this is actually Chinese Communist propaganda. We should not say that. We should not do that. We should not go about it just because the Communist Party claim that you're not compassionate enough to Chinese people. That's not our voice. Communist Party does not represent our voice. Therefore, to articulate those and to speak out about those things will help further encourage real Chinese voices to come out, to speak about their experience and what they really think about Taiwan, about Hong Kong, and about Chinese Communist Party. I agree with both Anastasia and Kaveh and their thoughts on this. I would add to that that we need to deploy a, a foreign agents registry. A lot of these regimes, what they do is they buy up influence in countries like Canada and other Western nations. Uh, this means... You know, for former diplomats, former elected officials, former appointed officials, and academics. Often what they will do is that they will give these individuals plumb positions on various different trade associations, China-Canada trade associations, Russia-Canada trade associations, with corporations in those nations. I know of a, a former senior Canadian diplomat who soon after retiring was given a position on a large Russian resource company. By giving these individuals these sorts of positions and rewarding them, they're buying influence. And it's been in my experience that those individuals are then used often to engage in these sorts of intimidation, disinformation campaigns because they have high level networks and they have access to individuals in power. We need to make sure that political leaders, media and such through a foreign agents registry are able to identify who exactly these people are and who they represent so that a former diplomat doesn't present themselves as simply a former diplomat when it comes to their comments in Canadian media, but they are clearly identified as representing foreign interests. So that's one thing that we definitely could do rather immediately to protect Canadian activists. At the time of recording, we are hearing lots of rumors that an election might be coming by the time listeners tune in might already be underway. But from where we're sitting now, I believe it's fair to say that no party has presently articulated what a vision would look like to combat transnational repression, to articulate a foreign policy that is coherent with respect to our values and interests and sufficiently combats the influence operations of repressive foreign regimes. A kind of open question to everyone as well, again, what would you like to see from the political parties in terms of messaging and framing a vision on these issues? What would be a good starting point for this? Of course, they're not going to solve it all overnight, but 
maybe another way to think about this would be that if you're in an elevator with the prime minister, Minister Bill Blair and Minister Mark Garneau, and you only had a, a few seconds to articulate to them what they should be doing about these issues. How would you recommend they go about it? And perhaps I'll start with you, Anastasia. I believe the foreign, uh, or you call it global affairs in Canada right now, maybe should establish an office just for these dissidents and Canadians who are experiencing all of this, because then to study it systematically and to offer support systematically so that when my father gets threatened in China, which is quite often, I have somewhere to call at least to get counseling for the very least. And then maybe they can offer monitoring or some kind of action to help speaking up for my father. Right. Yeah. Something that would coordinate efforts a little bit. And uh, we see this, of course, too, with victims of hostage diplomacy, where presently there's no centralized strategy for how the government handles it. It's kind of fend for yourself. And as uh, Marcus and Cavea also alluded to, when suffering from transnational repression in the form of death threats and other kinds of threats, there's little organized recourse that the government provides. Having an office within uh, foreign affairs or global affairs to accomplish that would be a, a great idea. How about you, Marcus? What do you think is the thing that you would say to cabinet if they were all in an elevator with you on this issue? I think that we need to go back to what we were initially talking about, the fact that we need to recognize that this is a problem, that it's a threat to our national security, and we need to approach it as this. Uh, right now, I think we've put some measures in place to deal with foreign interference, and I lump this all together into foreign interference, intimidation, disinformation, influence operations. They're all one. We can't separate these issues into silos, and we need to address it as such. So I think that's the first step. They need to recognize that this is a problem. I think that the current government hasn't done a great job, but there are certainly liberal members of parliament. I think about John McKay, who's really being quite effective at speaking out about the problem. Individuals have done a fairly good job of it, but we need a cohesive strategy that's articulated from each of those parties. And I would completely agree with Anastasia and, and what she suggested is that there needs to be someone, whether it's in global affairs or national defense even, or public safety, an individual and an office that coordinates these efforts. Like I said earlier, this is not a specific specific problem to, you know, just civil society actors. It's, it's a whole of democracy problem. And we need the entire government working together and someone coordinating that effort to defend our democracy and make sure that civil society activists who are under threat, that they're protected and that they don't face the sort of threats that we're facing today. Kavi, last word is yours. I won't repeat any of the excellent recommendations that my colleagues have made, but I will reiterate a point that I made earlier in the interview, which is that Part of the issue here is our lack of due diligence with respect to our immigration system and with the money that's flowing into Canada that's being used to finance some of this stuff. And so if I had a few minutes to pitch an idea alongside all the things that Anastasia and Marcus said, I would also say we need to increase our resources with respect to our immigration and we need to better equip law enforcement and our intelligence agents to follow the money that's coming from these bad actors to figure out what that money is being used for. And I feel like that might go some distance in terms of protecting people. Thank you all for sharing both your experiences as well as your solutions for some of these problems when it comes to transnational repression. And of course, we've highlighted China, Russia, and Iran today, but other regimes are engaged in the practice. As Kave, you mentioned, it's part of the nature of these regimes and how they operate. So it would be valuable to see the government tackle this issue more seriously, whether it's the liberals returning to power after a prospective election or a new government in place, these issues aren't going anywhere. So articulating what solid vision for uh, managing transnational repression would be great to see from our political leaders. 
So again, Anastasia, Lynn, Marcus Koga, and Kavi Sharus, thank you all so much for joining us today on this episode of Podbluffs Canada, and we hope to have you on all again very soon.